Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 4. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to take it out and turn there. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 13 to 18. If you want to use one of the blue Bibles to look at the text, it's going to be on page 1257. Um, And if you're able, uh, I will invite you to stand as I read this passage. Um, And then when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So really, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 deal with uh, the same subject, and they deal with it from uh, a kind of continuation, but we're going to divide it into two separate sermons, and this week, look specifically at these last verses of chapter 4, where Paul is specifically dealing with two of the biggest questions that anyone can ever ask. What happens when I die, and what happens when this life is over, when this world is is over. And these questions were obviously very important to the, to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians had concerns. They had questions. And Paul wants them to be informed. That's what he says. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be informed about these questions. And you look at verse 18. He wants them to be encouraged by the answer that he gives about the hope that is found in Jesus when it comes to these questions about what happens when we die and what happens when this life is, is over. Because a Christian doesn't have to guess the answer to those questions. We don't have to guess. In fact, a Christian has great hope, and that's what I want us to see this morning. That's what I want us to briefly consider as we come to the the Lord's table in a few minutes. I want us to look at this first. I want to look at three things, and they're printed in the bulletin as it relates to what we just read. First, our need for hope, the reason for hope, and then the coming of hope. The reason the need, the need, the reason, and and, and the coming. Now, we'll get to each of them as we go, but let's start with the need for hope. Start with the text, start with verse 13. Paul's talking with the Thessalonians about these things because he says he does not want them to be uninformed. Now, uninformed about what? He said, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. He's talking about Christians who have died, right? This is a pretty common expression in the Bible to talk about people who have died. The point here is that the Thessalonians are concerned about the issue of death. And they're grieving, they're upset, um, because they, they, they know people, they know Christians who have, have died. And Paul wants to correct some misinformation about death. He wants to respond to their lack of knowledge about these things with the ultimate goal of encouraging them. That's what it says in verse 18. He wants to encourage them. Now, thinking about death and thinking about happens when we die, that's not something that was limited to the Thessalonians, was it? Is it? Right? Think, about, um, think about our own time. Think about our own century. We have just come through over the last month a cultural holiday that says a lot about who we are and about what we like to think about. It gets bigger every year, it seems, right? This uh, this entire month of of October. I can talk about it now because it's November. 
All right, kids, I want kids, I want you to do a little imaginary game with me for a second. I want you to do an imaginary game with me. I want you to pretend, just for a minute, pretend that you're from another planet. You're from another planet, um, and you arrive in New Jersey the last week of October. And you have to send a report back to your planet about what New Jersey people think about. Now, you can't talk to people. Remember, you're from another planet. You don't know English, right? You really don't know, and you don't want anyone to know you're here. Right, but you can fly through the neighborhood. You have this special cloaking technology in your little spaceship and stuff. You can fly through the neighborhoods. No one will see you. And you really just need to report back on the things that you see. And you fly through the neighborhoods around here. Wall and Howe and Brick and Point and Tom's River and all the, all the local communities. And, and you look at the people's houses. And what do you see? Right? What are you going to write in your report? Right, remember, it's the last week of October. What do you see in other people's houses? Right? In their yards, on their lawns, right? I'll tell you what I saw last week. Right? I saw pretend skeletons all over people's all over people's lawns, right? They were sitting on chairs. They were hanging from trees. I saw pretend tombstones, right? Grave markers all over people's lawns. I don't think they had a permit for, like, for that, but I'm assuming that they were just plastic, too, that there weren't real people there. But right? I saw some really gruesome scenes, too, in some places. Mannequins, right? Pretend people arranged in ways that made them look like they were killed in some pretty disgusting kind of ways. And if I had to summarize for my planet what these people from New Jersey thought about, Right, what consumed their thinking based on my short little visit in the last week of October, I would say that these people are absolutely consumed with thinking about death. Right? Now, there's a cranky way and there's a constructive way to talk about this morbid fascination that we have with death every October. Right? We can be either cranky about it or we became, can be constructive. Now, I can be cranky. Ask my family. Right? I, can, I, I, have a, I have a gift of sarcastic crankiness. Right? But, but there's, and there's some justification for that, but, I, but let's be constructive instead. Let's be sympathetic. Why? Why do we go through this as a culture? Why this fascination with, with death? Well, because no matter what we say, we fear it. Right? Any armchair psychologist will tell you that there is something subconsciously therapeutic about what people are trying to do with placing skeletons and grave markers and gruesome scenes all over their lawns every October. Right? What are they doing? They're trying to engage death and be in control of it. Right? They're trying to face death in a way that doesn't really hurt them. And isn't that really what we all want? Right? The skeleton is just plastic, right? right? So you know it can't really hurt you. The creepy hayride, right? They're not really going to touch you. You can't really get hurt. Right? It's what we all want. We want to be able to face death, control death, and have death not really hurt us. That's what everyone desperately wants. That's what people are really looking for in, in, in October every year. It's really what they're looking for all year long. Now, in thinking about death, if you aren't coming from a Christian perspective, I think there really are three main categories of answers to that question that Paul's helping the Thessalonians deal with, and that's what happens when you die. Right? These are the three common kind of views that you'll encounter, right? Three options of, of, of what happens when we die. First option, nothing. Nothing happens. You just disappear. Gone. Right? The, like, I mean, maybe you live on in the memory of someone. Right? That, of course, that only lasts until they die. <laughs> A couple of generations, even the memories are likely, likely going to be gone. Now, lots of people think like this. Now, without dealing, about whether, dealing with whether it's true, it's pretty easy to say that that isn't particularly hopeful. Right? In fact, if there, was one, if there was one option about how to think about what happens when we die, that's probably the one that is most inclined to lead you to despair. Right? It, because it basically says, like, yeah, this is pretty pointless. Right? I mean, because nothing lasts. You're just a sack of cells among billions of other sacks of cells that has a conscious existence maybe for a very short period of time, this teeny tiny period of time in history, and then you die, and then nothing. Right? That's option one, right? No hope there, which is, what, which is why people try 
option number two, right? Option number one, what happens when you die? Nothing. What happens option number two, people say, recycle, right? This is the circle of life answer, right? Remember right, King Mufasa from, from, the, from the Lion King telling his young son Simba, right, about life and death. Simba, let me, let me explain. He says, when we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelopes eat the grass, and so we're all connected in this great circle of life, right? That's the recycling theory. It leads, it's an at least attempt at hope, some sort of greater purpose, right? You still die, you still lose consciousness, right? So in that sense, it's still kind of the nothing option, but you live on through your chemicals, right? Here too, I don't, I don't think this is particularly satisfying. Uh, Peter Kreft, a Christian philosopher in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, originally from New Jersey actually, tells a story about one of his neighbors, uh, a woman who had a seven-year-old son, uh, and this little boy's three-year-old cousin Another little boy died suddenly, tragically. And the boy came to his mom and said, Mommy, where's my, where's my cousin now? What, what, happens, what happens to my cousin now? And she had, you know, she had thought, I guess, about that. She didn't believe in God, but so, so, she, so she, maybe she picked this up in a brochure somewhere or whatever. She gave him the recycling option. She said, well, your cousin has gone back to the earth. We all come from the earth. He's gone back to the earth. And death is just a natural part of the cycle of life, she said. And when you see the earth's uh, putting forth flowers next spring, you can know that your cousin's life has helped fertilize the flowers. Recycle theory. She thought she sounded pretty good, just like Mufasa, right? And her son, this little boy, looked at her and screamed, I don't want him to be fertilizer, and ran out of the room. No, we don't either, right? We, don't, we, we really need hope, and the recycle option doesn't give you hope either. Right now, one other option, and this, this, this isn't really Christian, but it, is, it does sort of become very religious. This is what I would call the probation option. Right? This is what religions, uh, just about uh, most world religions to one degree or another do. They view death as either the end of or the start of this giant test of probation. And I guess there's a bit of hope here because there is a promise in most religious systems of some sort of conscious afterlife, but it's all very uncertain as to whether or not you really want that afterlife or whether or not it's something you want to participate in because the struggle isn't over, right? And the biggest problem with facing death, if you do think that there is something conscious on the other side, is that we seem to intuitively know that we're not really prepared for it, right? That's where most of the anxiety comes from. If you think there's something after this, but you kind of think it's just sort of part of a, of a probation that you're kind of still in process or whatever, that's where most of the fear kind of comes from because we kind of know, I don't think I'm ready for that, right? And different religious systems, they've all tried to kind of work this out throughout history, right? The Greek underworld, which would have probably been the most prominent worldview of the Thessalonians at the time, right? The Greek underworld, that was a place that was mostly torment, mostly trial, striving, you know, trying to get to paradise. You kind of keep working. The Eastern religions, right? Hinduism, probably the, the most obvious example, right? Envision a series of lives that allow people to kind of keep, keep working, get better every time. You'll get a little and a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer to ultimately, hopefully, maybe a perfect state of of nirvana. Even Roman Catholicism developed the concept of purgatory, not a biblical idea, to deal with a concern that this life wasn't enough to deal with all of your imperfections, so you need more time, right? But in every case, death doesn't provide any certainty, any sure hope of something better, just chances, right? A probation of, of sorts. Now, all that kind of discussion, that might be a little bit long-winded for you, but it gets, it gets at why Paul needed to be absolutely clear in this discussion that he's having at the end of chapter 4 and then going into the beginning of chapter 5. Absolutely clear for the Thessalonians to be able to answer this question about what happens when you die and at the end of your life. Because getting the answer wrong about your own death and about the future of the world leads to despair and hopelessness if you don't have any good answers for it. 
Now, as to the specific situation in Thessalonica, this is what was happening there, right? This is, this, this is what made their question kind of come up. It appears that some Christians in the church had died, and the survivors were concerned about what happened to them, right? And specifically, it seems as if they were concerned that when Jesus came back to establish his perfect forever kingdom, right, something that Paul's going to talk about, and we'll talk more about the end of, you know, a little bit this morning, and then the next time when we look at the beginning of chapter 5, Right? But Jesus said that was going to happen. I'm going to come back, promised it was going to happen. They believed that was going to happen. And they were concerned that because their friends had died first, that maybe they weren't going to get to participate in like, all the great things that were going to happen when Jesus comes back. And that's why Paul is writing to them, to sort of help them understand. Like, no, 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 there is, there is hope in this. Right? And that's what he gives them. Right? Because they have a need for hope, point number one, he gives them, point number two, a reason for hope. And this is really just verse 14. He tells them, actually, before he tells them what exactly is going to happen, he tells them that the ultimate proof that it will happen is this, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, since we believe, right, here's the reason. For everything I'm going to tell you in a minute, this is how we can know it's true because we know, number one, that Jesus died, and we know, number two, that Jesus rose. That's how we know. That's the, found, that's the foundation of Christianity right there. That's the reason for hope in the face of death. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because it means that we have someone who has gone before us into death and who has defeated death. See, the biggest, like I was saying before, the biggest anxiety about death, once you reject the nothing option and the recycle option, the biggest anxiety about death is exactly like I said before, that we know we aren't prepared. Because we all go into death ill-equipped. We all go unarmed. It's the great equalizer, right? We, we lose our strength and we're powerless to, to stop it. Our money will do us no good. Our education will not help us. Right? We could have all the Instagram followers in the world. They're not going to be able to help you. Right? But the Christian hope is that you do not go into death alone. In fact, you don't just have a companion in death when it comes to Jesus. You have a forerunner when it comes to death. Someone who has gone first, who's cleared the path, who's guaranteed the victory. Now, really the best place to dig into the theology of all this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians too. And in chapter 15, he goes a little bit more deeply into it. Right? What, what, what he just simply states here in 1 Thessalonians, he unpacks in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just read 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let me read verses 3 and 4. He writes there in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is what's of first importance. Okay? So he signals it. All right? All right. This is what's most important. First importance, here it is. You ready? Here it is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he died, that he was buried, in other words, he was really dead, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see? First importance, death and resurrection of Jesus. And he keeps going in 1 Corinthians 15. And starting in verse 20, he explains how this results in real hope when facing our death. Now bear with me, right? But just listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 15 again, starting at verse 20. He says, okay, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see that? Our hope in death is that Jesus died first and rose first. Now, he wasn't the first human being to die in all of history, but he dies primarily. Right? He dies first. He is our forerunner into death and he rises right the hope for everyone who has fallen asleep same language as in first thessalonians chapter four 
right? Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, right? Look again at verse 14. See the logical connection that Paul makes, the way he builds this kind of statement between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the certain hope of the Christian's resurrection, right? Look at the structure of this verse, verse 14, right? There's two clauses. First clause, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, first clause. Second clause, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Same thing Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians 15, do you see? Just a little bit more kind of succinctly stated here. This is classic rhetoric, classic Greek rhetoric. Assuming the truth of the first clause, the second clause necessarily follows. Right? See how it works? Right? Assuming the truth that Jesus rise, died and rose again. If you assume that, then it necessarily follows that through Jesus, God will bring with, them, with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, the through Jesus part, that's the, that's, that's the essential part of Christianity because who gets to live with Jesus forever in the eternal kingdom? It's not the people who worked really hard. Right? It, it's, it's not the people who are, who are the best moral people right, who have tried to check all the boxes. Right? It's nothing that anyone earns or disease, uh, deserves. It's those who are there through Jesus who find themselves, verse, end of verse 16, right, in Christ. Right? It's not all the dead who rise to this kind of hope. It, the ones who rise to this kind of hope, this resurrection hope, are the ones who are in Christ. There's a, uh, a classic old hymn, mid-1700s. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. Right? Do you see the gospel in that? you see the good news in that? See the real hope? Right, you should. It does sort of assume that you understand what that word deigned means. It's an old archaic kind of word. Right, kids, here's your free vocabulary word of the week. You ready? Free vocabulary word of the week. To deign. What does it mean to deign something? But to deign is to do something that you don't really have to do. To, to condescend. Something that might be beneath you. You don't have to do it, but you do it anyway. Right? Jesus didn't have to die. He did nothing wrong. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't required to die, but he deigned to die, right? Jesus, he who deigned to die for me. That's how the hymn goes, right? right? What did Jesus do? He died. For whom? For me. What does that mean? It means, hymn says, the sting of death is gone forever and the bands of death now are severed. That's what it means. Jesus lives and so shall I. That's the reason for our, for our hope. Now, finally, point number three, the coming of hope. Now, isn't this convenient, right? We're just about out of time. This is where all the controversy is. I guess we'll just have to punt. No, listen, we're all, the, the, there are, there's all kinds of different views of the, of the end times and how things are debated. And ha have no fear, we'll have plenty of time uh, to get out all the end times charts and stuff when we come to, to chapter five. Because Paul keeps going on this topic and really it's not worth dealing with some of the controversy uh, on this topic until we've had a chance to look at the beginning of chapter five too. But for now, what I wanna do Right? I think it's more than enough for us to just simply do what Paul does here. And that's just state matter-of-factly what's going to happen. Now, he certainly doesn't give all the details about the future return of Jesus, but he does give us an outline of what's going to happen. And it impresses upon us through what he says here that our hope is based on more than just an historical happening, the death and resurrection. It is based on that, but our hope is actually based on a promised future as well. In other words, our hope of what happens when we die and when, and when this world ends is not just based on what happened in history. It's based on what we anticipate happening in the future and what's going to happen in the future. Well, Jesus is coming back. <laughs> He's returning, right? Jesus told us he would. And Paul tells us a little bit more about, about what will happen. Now, first of all, he corrects 
what was probably the misunderstanding of the Thessalonians. I told you what the problem of the Thessalonians was. He corrects that. They were worried that the Christians who had died already would miss, or that some of them might be late to, the, 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 the kingdom, the great new kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And Paul says, look, no, look, that's not, that's not how it's going to happen. What's going to happen is this. On the day when Jesus returns, he's going to descend from heaven. And those Christians who have died, the ones that you're worried about, Thessalonians, those who have died already, their bodies will rise from the grave and they will be rejoined with their souls. And then those Christians who are still alive at the time when this happens, then they'll join the Lord as well, right? That's how it's going to happen. Don't need to worry about, about your, your brothers and sisters, your, your Christian friends who have died already. They're going to be a part of this too. That's how it's going to happen. You don't need to worry, right? That's the basic summary of verses 14b to, to 17. Now, there is a lot more for us to learn here about what this teaches us about the, the return of Jesus. And, and actually, um, Derek Thomas, who is a, a Welsh a theologian, pastor, he's now an American seminary professor and, and, and pastor here in the United States, uh, but he gives uh, out of this five things that the return of Jesus is. And I modified them a little bit, but I give him credit because it's really, it's really his thoughts that, uh, that, that, that kind of guide this little outline here. I thought it'd be an extremely helpful summary. And I don't have the, the cool Welsh accent to go along with it, but, but let me give them to you. And then, um, and then we'll deal with some of the more controversial questions when we get to chapter 5. Right? But at the very least, this is what we know. The return of Jesus, Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians, is, number one, it's impending. In other words, it's going to happen. It's coming. Right? The Lord will descend. Right? You can bound. It's going to happen. Beginning of verse 16 is what it says. The Lord will descend. Right? The dead in Christ will rise. End of verse 16. Not might, will. It's going to happen, and you should be anticipating it. You should be waiting for it. You should be wanting it. Look at the front of the bulletin. You see the quote from John Calvin, the, the French uh, reformer, right? Let us not hesitate to await the Lord's coming, not only with longing, but also with groaning and sighs as the happiest thing of all. It's impending. It's going to happen, and that's good. Now, second thing that it is, the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, the return of it's obvious, it's going to be obvious. No secret return of Jesus. No quiet resurrection of asleep Christians from the, from the grave. Look at verse 16. When Jesus descends, he's going to descend with a cry of command. Not a, not a whisper, a cry. Right? You're going to hear the voice of an archangel. Right? Presumably, again, not whispering. And the sound of what musical instrument? The trumpet. The tr- a trumpet of God. Now, look, what's the one instrument in an orchestra that you can always pick out? Some instruments are meant to blend. You can always find the trumpet. You can always hear the trumpet. Right? The trumpet's not meant to be quiet. It's not meant to be a secret. It's not meant to be like, well, let me just blend into the background here. No, it is known. Other instruments blend. The trumpet pierces through. The return of Jesus is not going to be quiet. That's number two. Now, third, right? it's going to be transformative. In other words, it's not going to leave you the way you were. The dead in Christ will rise. They'll certainly be changed. Right? The great sting of death, the, 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 the ripping of body from soul, that's what happens when we die, right? It's not meant to be that way, right? Our souls disembodied, ripped from our bodies, right? That's going to be fixed. It's going to be undone. The soul and the body reunited, right? It's also going to change those who are still alive back in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. It's going to be transformative. Fourth, return of Jesus is going to be personal. He's not sending a messenger. Right? The king doesn't send an ambassador. The king is coming himself. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend. Fifth, it's permanent. 
Remember, when Jesus left his disciples in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he gives them what we call the Great Commission, uh, to make disciples from every nation, and he tells them, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, here we are, right, and what we're talking about now, the end of the age. And Jesus is making that, he's making that presence permanent. Look at verse 17. The dead will rise, the living will rise, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, so much of what we have here and everything that we're talking about here, and now in this age, everything that we enjoy, these things, they're just a down payment, a guarantee to secure for us what Jesus will pay in full when he finally returns. Look, right, look, take what we have here in front of us in the Lord's Supper. This is what we're going to do in a second, right? It's common and it's appropriate to think of the Lord's Supper as a ceremony of, of remembrance, right? There's good reasons for that, right? On a lot of our tables, it says, you know, do this in remembrance of me. It's appropriate because that's what Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right? But you know, the Lord's Supper, it doesn't just look backwards. It doesn't. It looks forward too. In fact, the Lord's Supper in some ways is really only just a teaser, a taste of what's to come. And you're supposed to be hungry for something, for something more. Have you ever wondered about that? Right, right about now, particularly if you were in Sunday school and you were smelling the soup earlier, right about now, you're getting pretty hungry. And then in just a minute, right, here, here I'm going to come and the elders are going to come and we're going to give you this tiny little piece of unleavened bread and this tiny little cup, right? And you're going to be like, yeah, I'm still hungry. Right? And when I'm passing the tray, I always, I myself, like I always smile to myself when someone takes a bigger piece of, of matzah, right? Because I'm saying I'm hungry too, man. <laughs> you know, because I got to tell you, like, I mean, if I didn't have to come back here and like worry about like, you know, spitting crumbs and stuff all over the table, or whatever. I would take the biggest piece of matzah in there. I would, right? But guess what, right? Even if I did, even if you do, God, take the big piece, right? Now I'm not judging you, right? But here's the point, right? Even if you take the biggest piece in there, right? You'd still be hungry. And you know what? It's supposed to be like that. There's more to come. This meal is a sign, right? There's a wedding feast that awaits us. And Jesus, the bridegroom, is preparing for his bride, the church, a feast that this only points to. And he says that on that day, right, this is in Isaiah, he says that on that day, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. In other words, wait for that day, pray for that day, long for that day. We're going to sing about it in just a minute. Yea, amen, let all adore thee high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Alleluia. Come, Lord, come. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would bring to right all that is wrong, that you would do it in your perfect timing, that you would help us to understand our place in that world and to live with hope, hope, you will accomplish what you have promised because you have gone before us, because you have died and you are raised, ruling and reigning, preparing to bring an end to all that is wrong and to return into our world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.